Dear esteemed listeners, welcome back to the third episode of Inside Grappa, the official podcast from the Group for Research and Assessment of Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthritis. My name is Fabian Proft, and I'm absolutely delighted to be your guide and host today. Each episode, we will dive into the latest research, insights, and breakthroughs from the world of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. And today, we are delving into a highly topical issue, one that's pivotal for countless patients and practitioners around the globe. On today's roster, we are dissecting and discussing the recent manuscript titled Management of Actual Disease in Patients with Psoriatic Arthritis. This manuscript is both illuminating and groundbreaking, providing a comprehensive overview of the current understanding and cutting-edge advancement in the management of actual disease within psoriatic arthritis patients. During this episode, we will be joined by some of the key contributors and experts in the field who were instrumental in crafting this manuscript. It is my pleasure to welcome Professor Daphne Gladman from Canada and Professor Ennio Lubrano from Italy. Daphne, Ennio, such a pleasure having you here tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Wonderful. So, Daphne, Actual BSA has been your research playground for years now. Could you maybe give us a journey through its evaluation and present-day ramifications? Yeah, so as you know, Axial PSA was first described by Verna Wright and John Mall in their book on spondylarthritis. They referred to predominantly axial disease. The difficulty, of course, is when you start seeing patients with psoriatic arthritis, is that the predominantly is very small proportion, just 4% of people that have axial disease. The majority of them also have peripheral disease. And I became interested in that shortly after I started my psoriatic arthritis program. And my first paper actually came out in 93, comparing psoriatic arthritis with axial disease and ankylosing spondylitis. And I realized that the patients were not the same, that the presentations were different, the clinical features and the radiographic features were different, and the association with HLA-B27 was different. And over the years, we've continued to assess this group. And most recently, we actually did a study through our collaboration with the Spondylarthritis Research Consortium Canada, SPARC, where one of the co-PI is Rob Inman, who is um, a spondylarthritis guy. And what we did is because our clinics follow the patients in the same way, using the same protocol, we were able to do a comparison between their patients that are seen in the spondylitis clinic and our patients that are seen in the psoriatic arthritis clinic. And what we demonstrated is again showing the differences that I showed with a very small group in the 90s demonstrating that patients with psoriatic arthritis with axial disease complain of less back pain. They are presenting at a later stage in life, at a higher age. So the, the question of the inflammatory back pain being less than 45 may not quite achieve its target in psoriatic arthritis because the patients begin with their disease a little later. And the B27 is much lower frequency in axial PSA than it is in ankylosing spondylitis. Now, when you look at x-rays, you find that there is much less grade three and four. There is less symmetry between those groups of patients. Now, when we did that study, we included 
all the patients that were seen in the spondylitis group and all the patients that were seen in the psoriatic arthritis group. And so subsequently, we thought, what if we look at patients that presented to the psoriatic arthritis clinic with axial disease without peripheral arthritis and compare those patients to the patients that presented to the spondylitis group without peripheral arthritis and without psoriasis. And lo and behold, the same differences exist. So this is a group of patients that should be the same. And in fact, when we started doing the study, we thought the patients were going to be the same. We thought that the only difference was where they were referred. And now we appreciate that the referring physician actually did the right thing, presenting those patients with psoriatic disease to the psoriatic arthritis clinic and presenting those or, or referring those that have ankylosing spondylitis to the spondylitis clinic. Why they did that, I have no idea. Daphne, you were touching on very important points, also differences in patient presentation. Maybe you can also uh, go a little bit more in detail about the gender aspect. How is this different than those two diseases? So in psoriatic arthritis in general, we have more women, right? I always say that it's an equal gender presenter. Whereas in ankylosing spondylitis, there is a definitely a, a more prominence to male gender. But even in the psoriatic arthritis group who present with axial disease, there is an increased male presence compared to the general psoriatic arthritis cohort. So it still affects males more commonly than females. But the bottom line is, even those who present to the psoriatic arthritis clinic with axial disease, the majority go on to develop peripheral disease as well at a certain point in time following their presentation. And that's what makes it so interesting as to how the referring physician actually felt that this patient should go to my clinic and that patient should go to Rob Inman's clinic. So I give them a lot of credit. Now, the other question is, how do we define axial disease and psoriatic arthritis? So if you look through the literature that we've put out, we defined it different ways along the way. In our original study that reported on axial disease and psoriatic arthritis from our cohort, we defined even if it was unilateral sacroiliitis, and patients also had to have some clinical features. But more recently, we have concentrated on the radiographic feature following the, the New York criteria for radiographic features of ankylosing spondylitis, which means you had to have bilateral grade two or unilateral grade three or four. And the reason for that is when we looked at our cohort, we found that many of the patients that had unilateral grade two ended up not evolving at all and having more osteoarthritis changes. And so we felt that to be certain that a patient had axial disease that could be attributed to the inflammatory component, it would be most appropriate to look at the radiographs. Brilliant. And also you, because you were speaking about imaging, and I think when 
assessing radiographs, we have to take into account that we can only see what has happened in the past, so see only structural changes. And what are your thoughts about implementing MRI, which can um, visualize um, active inflammatory changes also in the assessment for extra-psoriatic arthritis patients? So it would be great if we could do MRIs as a screen. The difficulty is, of course, in most jurisdictions, it's very difficult to get an MRI. And so in our clinic, we only do an MRI if a patient is suspected of having axial disease, but does not have x-ray changes. But because this is very important, we actually set out to do the AXIS trial, the axial psoriatic arthritis, and this is a very in important study. It combines the efforts of ASAS and GRAPA, and it was designed to recruit conservative patients with psoriatic arthritis, regardless of whether or not they have back pain. And it looks at the clinical features with metrology, with patient-reported outcomes, physician-reported outcomes, x-rays of the spine and sacroiliac joints, and MRIs of the spine and sacroiliac joints. And we're hoping that looking at this study, which will include about 400 patients from all over the world, will allow us to come to an agreed upon definition and some criteria for the classification of axial disease in psoriatic arthritis. And the study is pretty close to completion. We have over 300 of the 400 patients that are required, and we're hoping that by the end of this year, we will be completing uh, patient recruitment and completing all the imaging and clinical assessments. And hopefully by early next year, we will be able to start analyzing the data. Insightful. It's such a pleasure having you as one of the core PIs of the access study here with us today. Maybe you can also touch on another important point that you just raised because patient reported outcomes. What kind of patient reported outcome would you advise us to do in our patients with actual psoriatic arthritis? Since we do not have any specific questionnaires designed for axial psoriatic arthritis, we basically are using those measures that are used in axial spa. We get patients to do VASDAR, we get them to do ASQL, we get them to do fatigue scales, we get them to do a HAC, and in psoriatic arthritis, the HAC modified for spa was no different from the original HAC, so we stopped doing it in our clinic. We just do a HAC. And of course, we get a, a patient pain score and a patient global assessment of disease activity. In psoriatic arthritis, we also do the PSAID, which is more specific for psoriatic arthritis. And we have not yet analyzed whether it's different in patients with or without axial involvement. So. Hopefully we'll get that from the AXIS trial as well because we're collecting all this information. And we're also doing the HSR Health Index. So all of these questionnaires will be part of the, or at least are part of the study. And because we are going to have patients with and without axial disease, we should be able to actually determine which questionnaires identify those people best. I should also add 
that we're including biosamples in the AXIS trial. And so we'll have some additional research questions uh, to do with the genetics of the two diseases. Brilliant. So we already have the next research question that we need to have a specific patient reported outcome for patients with psoriatic arthritis and disease, right? Thank you for all your insights, Daphne. It was such a pleasure. And now to you, Enyo. As our understanding deepens, treatments adapt and response, how would you describe the current landscape of treatments for actual disease in psoriatic arthritis? Thank you for this question. It's a very tricky question. We know very well that so far, even in 2023, we still don't know exactly which is the best treatment to a certain extent for axial psoriatic arthritis. In fact, the first treatment recommendation and the second one they retrieve all the data based on the uh, clinical trials on ankylosing spondylitis, also called axial spondyloarthritis, because at the end of the day, the lack of real data coming from clinical trials lets a grappa to adopt the data. So if we merge all the data coming from the previous two treatment recommendations uh, on top of physiotherapy, and uh, NSAIDs, obviously all the class of TNF inhibitors were the main treatment recommended with a high level of evidence, but based on the treatment of axial spondylarthritis. After that, from 2019 until 2022, when the treatment recommendations were published, we tried to retrieve all the data And again, the data came, the vast majority, from the axial spondylarthritis. So reinforcing that in terms of evidence, strong recommended all the TNF inhibitors, then uh, IL-17 treatment as a class in which there was the first clinical trials based on patients with so-called axial psoriatic arthritis, uh, the maximized uh, trial by using secukinumab as IL-17 inhibitors. Then uh, we try also to look at the potential data coming from the clinical trials on JAK inhibitors. And at the time of the inclusion of this data in the treatment recommendation, the JAK inhibitors, tofacitinib, opatacitinib, shows some kind of evidence, but again, on axial spondylarthritis. Then the last question marks, the problem is, or not a problem, is if we can, uh, using IL-23 as a treatment target for patients with axial psoriatic arthritis. And at present, the main data came from a postdoc analysis of the data of patients pulled from the two trials on patients with psoriatic arthritis with predominant peripheral arthritis, and on top of that, the retrieve data from patients with an involvement of axial psoriatic arthritis based between clinical and radiological. The evidence based on the grade recommendation methodology was a sort of insufficient data compared to the other data coming from TNF, again, IL-17 and JAK inhibitors. So these are the, the main groups of treatment so far for axial psoriatic arthritis. Thank you, Enyo. And we heard already from Daphne a lot about the similarities, but especially also about the differences between patients with actual manifestation of the psoriatic arthritis 
and patient with ankylosing spondylitis or extra spondyloarthritis. So from your expert opinion, Enyo, do you think that it is appropriate to just think that all treatments that were effective in ankylosing spondylitis will be showing the same effect also on patients with extra psoriatic arthritis? Or should we rather try to focus specifically on this patient population of patients with extra manifestation in PSA? This is a really good question because as a glance, I could say that if we treat patients with axial spondylarthritis, possibly we could treat uh, patients with axial psoriatic arthritis too because the evidence are very similar in terms of treatment and in, uh, based on the outcome measures. But if we move back, but we come backwards, I totally agree with Daphna Gladman. I am still convinced that axial psoriatic arthritis and axial spondyl arthritis are two different conditions or two different phenotypes of a, a broad group of diseases. So there's a lot to do to be sure that the, the same treatment for axial spondyl arthritis we can you know, use at the same time on patients with axial psoriatic arthritis. But at the moment, I, I think also you, we do the same more or less. Fantastic. Thank you, Anjo. And maybe also to wrap it up, you can both share your perspective on existing unmet needs and managing patients with active psoriatic arthritis and maybe also give a brave outlook into the future in a very concise soundbite. I think one of the biggest problems is, is how to treat it. At the moment, we are basically treating axial psoriatic arthritis as if it was ankylosing spondylitis. But as I pointed out, there are differences between the two diseases. There's some suggestion from some of the post-talk analyses of drug trials and one drug trial that with an IL-17 that actually showed that it works. But the question is whether, for example, IL-23 agents will work. And I think we can't have good studies until we define the disease better. Although we have the STAR study, which uh, evaluates IL-23 in axial psoriatic arthritis, uh, defined primarily by MRI and imaging. And that will come out probably in another year and a half or so. But I still think that we need more information on the management of axial psoriatic arthritis. Great summary. And now to you, Enyo. There's a few ways to try to address this big unmet need. Uh, first of all, we need to real think the clinical relevance of true axial psoriatic arthritis when it's a predominant one because I think axial psoriatic arthritis many times is one of the manifestations in patients with also peripheral arthritis. So we need to distinguish two possible phenotypes in established disease, uh, which one is, I think, less clinical relevant because in terms of prevalence, it's probably less than 10%. While the other one is more prevalent because it's a, a, a manifestation with uh, peripheral arthritis. The other side of the coins is what you also published a few months ago. And when we have to be very clever, if we manage to look at any axial psoriatic arthritis or axial involvement in very early stages of disease, that so-called transition, like you exactly published on annals, that is a, is a very intelligent 
way to maybe find another subset of the axial psoriatic arthritis in the early stages, which could be having different, let's say, outcome or prognosis. So at the end, my conclusion is, if you want, we have to split axial throughout patients with established disease is one condition, and axial psoriatic arthritis in early stages, because probably in the early stages could be the main manifestation and maybe could be different from the peripheral arthritis, also in terms of outcome, in terms of treatment. When you see axial psoriatic arthritis in late stage of the disease, established disease, on top of possible misdiagnosis of degenerative osteoarthritis, dish, fibromyalgia, and blah, 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 maybe it's not so clinical relevant because at the end of the day, when you choose a treatment, you choose a treatment for all manifestations, including axial psoriatic arthritis. I hope I was a bit long to address very tricky and difficult questions. <laughs> Dear Fabian. Now, thank you for your highlights. And I think it was really a pleasure listening to your expert opinion on this. Therefore, thank you, Daphna. Thank you, Anya, for your brilliant insights into the disease and the current understanding of actual disease and psoriatic arthritis. Thank you so much for having us and for having this whole podcast series. I think it's very important for both the members and the general public that might be interested. And with this, it's a wrap for today's Inside Grappa episode on management of actual disease in patients with psoriatic arthritis. A big thanks to our guest experts and to all of you for tuning in. Remember, there's so much more ahead in the world of Grappa. Stay curious and keep those alerts for upcoming episodes. We've got some exciting content coming up. Until next time, it was a real pleasure. My name is Fabian Prof, and I really enjoyed taking this episode today with you.